Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. So I've got a broken leg still, so terrible on steps. Um, uh, thank you. Um, I'm, when I talk to people about games, which I obviously do quite a lot, uh, people are always very shocked and surprised to discover that Australia has a games industry. Uh, and not only does Australia have a games industry, but our games industry dates back to the early 80s. So is one of the actual very early industries in the world. Um, so in this panel, we're going to look at some of the myths and legends and some of the true history uh, that we tell ourselves about our local industry. And um, we're very honoured to have here today to share their thoughts a very esteemed panel of Australian talent. And uh, between them, they have over 70 years, I think, of games design experience. So if we went into a cage match with Warren Spector with this team, we'd come out OK. Uh, perhaps when Tim joins in there, it might get more tricky. OK. Now, they're all going to... I've asked them all uh, to come up and speak about their personal stories in uh, the games industry, so where they started... Uh, and what they've been working on over the years. Because one of the things I'm aware of is, is that we don't communicate much about our own industry. And unlike uh, other things like the Australian film industry, which is constantly being celebrated, the Australian games industry rarely gets a mention, hardly gets a mention in the cultural pages. We might get a little squeak in in the technology section every now and then. Um, but this is a really important cultural form, and uh, we really need to celebrate the creatives who are engaged in it. So I've asked them all to come and speak about themselves, so I won't give everybody a full introduction. But just to let you know, uh, we have on our panel um, John Passfield, who started making and publishing games when he was 16 in 1983 on the Microbee. Uh, Steve Faulkner of Infinite Interactive, who created the brilliant War uh, Warlord series and, of course, is well known to you through Puzzle Quest. Uh, Tony Lay, whose company Iron Monkey is known for its excellent in, in uh, games for the mobile devices and uh, whose company was recently acquired by EA. Uh, Matthew Hall, who uh, left the studio Trenches to run the studio, one-man studio ClickTok, which is known for its brilliant staff and team and, and management structures, obviously, uh, and uh, is the creator of the huge uh, iOS hit uh, Doodle Jump. So first up, I'd like to invite uh, John Passfield onto the stage to tell you his uh, personal journey. And um, please make John very welcome. Okay, uh, thanks, Helen. Okay, this is my presentation here, which I'll talk about. So my name is John Passfield, and I've been making games for, for a while. Here are some of my games up here, so I'll walk through some of them. Um, here we go. Oh, first of all, my defining moment. So what really got me into games uh, as a kid was um, a time at a place called the Lismore Show. I grew up in rural New South Wales. And uh, I went to uh, the Lismore Show, which was basically you know, lots of cows and horses and, 
and uh, Ferris wheels. And in one of the tents was a computer display. And on that computer they had, a, a, I think it might have been a, a pet or one of those sort of old CMOS computers. But they, they had a game called Adventure or Colossal Cave, which is by um, Carother and Woods. And I sat there and I, was, I, I, I went up to it and I typed on it. And um, you know, it responded to what I was typing. And one of the sequences I remember clearly in my head was, a, as I might have this wrong, but it was a, a room with a, a dwarf and there was a pile of gold and he threw an axe at me. And I picked the axe up and it said, I held the axe. Then I said, throw axe. And it said, you throw the axe at the dwarf and he disappeared in a puff of greasy smoke. That's the way I remember it as a child. And it was like, my God, this is amazing. It was like completely interactive and it just sort of, from that moment on I thought, this is something I want to, I want to do. So I, at that time I was a you know, child of the 70s and you know the whole thing with you know Spielberg and Lucas had made these great stories, and to me this is a way to tell stories. That was a very uh, a very personal way of doing it, and, and felt like within within my realms, not living in Hollywood. So that was very exciting. So I pestered my parents to get the I think soon after was the Visa 200 uh, Dick Smith computer, which I think was made by a Chinese company or Hong Kong company, uh, VTech and rebadged. Um, but it was amazing. It had I think four kilobytes of RAM, and um, it had built-in BASIC. Uh, and I still have this at home. That's my taken outside of my our house. And we got that for Christmas, and that was when I started to learn to program BASIC. And my first game was called Attack of the Invisible Werewolf, which had a little pixel on the screen, and after a few seconds, the werewolf would get you and you'd die. So that was kind of my first interactive attempt at games. Then after that, in, in, uh, in the um, 80s, uh, Microbee, which is an actual Australian-made computer, uh, made in Gosford, they, had this, uh, they were rolling out computers to schools. And so uh, we upgraded and got a microbe computer. And this is where I sort of first began to program seriously. So, um, so during high school in the 1984 um, was you know, arcades were huge everywhere, and even Kyogle, my little country town, had an arcade. Uh, Kyogle had a population of, like, I think, 3,500 people. But there was a game called um, Pango. And being you know, in high school, not understanding anything about copyright or anything like that, I loved playing this game where you push blocks around. It's, I think it might be one of the first match three games. You had to match three blocks and they disappear, which is pretty cool for way back in the 80s. Uh, and so I went home and I wanted to play it because it cost 20 cents a, a go. And so I got the Mercury and I programmed my own version of that. And, um, and then I called it Chili Willy. So I, I, I broke two lots of copyright. I took the uh, copyright of the uh, Pengo and I took Walter Lance's beloved little ch- uh, penguin character. But on a lark, I sent it off to, um, down to Gosford where Applied Technology and uh, I think it was called Honeysoft made these uh, computers and games, and they wrote me a letter back saying, great game, can we publish it? And I said, great, yeah. So I actually officially was published in high school, and I got a cassette tape, which I have in my bag over there, um, and it's, uh, yeah, so that was it. It was released, and you can only buy it at really small hobby stores or computer stores, and then that nearest one to me was in Lismore. It was a little shop that had, um, called uh, CompuK, that you could buy the game from, but they sent me two copies, which was very nice of them. Uh, then the next Christmas break, I thought, this is fun. I didn't tell anyone at school that I was doing this because it was so nerdy and geeky that no one knew. And uh, my wife, who, um, who was actually at school at the time with me, and we married later, she didn't know at all. So no one knew that because I thought it was too nerdy. So I made a game called... I thought, I'll do something original this time. So I made Halloween Harry. And so this was a, another sort of original concept where inspired, I think, um, I think it was 85 would have been Ghostbusters. So I thought, I'll make a game where you have to kill ghosts and, and collect keys and, and get out. And during this time, too, there was also the kind of uh, stuff that I was getting information-wise was, um, was a lot of stuff from the, from the UK and some stuff from the US, but it was mostly um, some cool magazines that had ZX Spectrum games and things like that. So I was inspired by that sort of style of game. Um, 
So then I went to university, studied uh, computer science, because the idea of making games for a living didn't really occur to me that you could do it, because I got royalty checks of like maybe $1,000 or $2,000, which was great pocket money. They didn't arrive for years later um, during university time, which was nice. Um, so I studied uh, computer science, then left and joined telecom, as it was called back then, and found that so horrible I just despised computers from that point onwards. Um, but I met a guy called Steve Symbiotis uh, through mutual friends. We did comic books and I used to write comics and stuff. And decided, right, I'm going to introduce me to the Amiga. And I thought the Amiga computer was a new opportunity to make games again. And my love of computers sort of began to resurface. So I quit my job from um, Telecom and we formed GWiz Entertainment. Uh, it was originally called Interactive Binary Illusions. And I actually funded myself in those early days by actually um, writing comic strips for Australia Consolidated Press magazines. Um, quality magazines like The Picture, um, which is a great thing. We did a strip called politically incorrect strip called Dingo Boy and uh, one called Vixen Rangers. And that actually, God bless, um, you know, Rip Murdoch, I think, owns ACP, is that right? Um, they paid well. So that kind of funded my early days of computer game development. So we um, kind of went back to the well and Steve liked the Hello and Harry idea I had, so we decided to remake that um, for the Amiga computer. And we, what we did was um, uh, actually then found some other guys in Brisbane who were making games and got them in to help make this game. Uh, and because we weren't, didn't have enough to do, we decided to make, we played Monkey Island and decided let's make a point-and-click adventure game. And um, so we had Helen, Helen Harry and we had Amazon Queen on the go at the same time. So all up, there was a team of four of us making these two kind of wildly ambitious games. Um, and then we followed up later on with a game called Zombie Wars. So we're probably a little bit too far ahead of the curve with the zombie craze. Maybe we could bring that back. Um, and then... We sort of struggled through the 90s, making games. They made money, uh, kept us in business, which was great. And then uh, during the 90s, end of the 90s, we decided we wanted to move into consoles and PlayStation. And that sort of began the impetus of forming Chrome Studios. So I formed that with uh, Steve and uh, Rob Walsh. And that sort of began this juggernaut that grew and grew and grew. And uh, I won't go into great detail, but we made a lot of games uh, from uh, Barbie, Beach Vacation, and uh, King Arthur and all sorts of stuff. And um, I left that company in 2005. Uh, and joined Pandemic, uh, who had come off the hits of uh, Destroy Humans, which is a great game. Stayed with those guys until uh, they were acquired by um, EA, and EA decided that they wanted to kind of, um, I think the GFC hit at that stage, so they decided to close down their um, studios. Uh, and I joined Three Blokes Studios as, a, as an owner. And with that studio, we uh, saw that we wanted to move more into Facebook, so we started making Facebook games. So my journey led from, you know, Small one-person games to bigger console games and PC games, then to Facebook games and social networking games. Um, and unfortunately, um, well, well, luckily we sold our company to RockU, another American company, who then decided within a year to close it down as well. Uh, which leads me to, um, now I'm independent again, I've gone full circle back to being a sole games developer uh, and developing games on uh, iPhone. And the first title I'm releasing is called Save Our Village, which hopefully, touch wood, will be out with, a, with probably 10,000 other games on that day in a few months' time. Um, okay, thank you. So, um, Thank you, John. And uh, for those of you who haven't had an opportunity to visit Screen Worlds here at uh, ACME, the permanent exhibition, there's actually an interview there uh, with John and uh, Steve Walsh. Sorry, Steve Stamatis and Rob Welsh from Chrome Studios. Um, that's part of the permanent exhibition. And even more exciting, there's a zoetrope that Acme made 
of Ty the Tasmanian Tiger. There's very few zoetropes of that kind in the world. Pixar have a beautiful one. Um, there's one at the Tezuka, I think, museum as well in Japan. And, uh, and then there's Acme's uh, Ty the Tasmanian one. So uh, I'd like to interview, as uh, interview, I'd like to introduce our next speaker, uh, Matthew Hall. Um, Matthew Hall, as stated before, is the uh, CEO, lead art director, lead programmer, <laughs> and everything of ClickTalk. So please make him welcome. So yes, I'm a uh, one-man band developer. I, I pretty much do everything myself, and I do it from a, a sheep farm in rural Victoria. So um, I'll just fill in a few blanks there. So I was actually born born in Edenhope, uh, uh, and I did start making games when I was eight. But uh, I, the, I got a Commodore 64 for my birthday, and I got uh, one game, which was a game called The Pit. I don't. It's, it's rather obscure, and it's really shit. And the other thing I got, of course, was a, was a manual. And so the game I finished very quickly and then I had nothing else to do with it. So I, I, dive, I dove straight into the manual and, and, you know, going out and trying to find books wherever I could. And, and I did that for, for quite a long time. And so my, my uh, video game heroes are people like uh, Tony Crother and Martin Walker who used to, you know, do those listings in those magazines or write up the... Zap 64 developer diaries, and uh, and for me, so I, I was generally looking to the UK and reading those kind of magazines rather than rather than Australian, which I, I didn't even know at that point that that games were even made in Australia. I mean, there was Melbourne House. I had no idea that was actually the Melbourne that was that was right near us. I was very young, and so uh, I've sort of been an indie developer since since then. I real I realised recently. I mean, w what's unusual is what I find really unusual now is that almost every game I worked on during that time I finished, which is, I think that's pretty unusual. Most people dabble and get lost and break things, but I, I have this rather large catalogue of games that I actually completed around those years. And I, I, I recently updated my LinkedIn profile and put all the games up there that I could remember making when I was, when I was you know, 10 years old. One thing that was really odd is, like again, the isolation and, and not having anyone to, to talk to or or understand or I mean there was no internet back then like making games was was sort of a, a crazy concept I had this really weird thing in my head where I thought that copying was wrong and so what I mean by that is that if I looked at a listing in a magazine and wanted I wouldn't try and adapt it I would try and start from scratch because I didn't want to take that line that's their line of code which was just I mean if I really could have used some advice back there it just goes to show how how ridiculous a thought a thought that is but um, uh, when I was around uh, ten, nine or ten or so, my, my grandpa took me out and bought me this book on how to write, how to write text adventures. And, and that sort of really opened my eyes. And from then, that was sort of my first game engine. And I wrote a, a lot of text adventures during that time, culminating with one I wrote when I was uh, 12 on a micro-V, in fact, the same as John, at school. And I, I, I printed out the listing and... I, I still have the listing. It would probably extend from from here to from from that wall over there to about where I'm standing now. And I I did that in eight weeks, uh, one hour a day at school. If I could get to that, I don't even think I can type that fast now. I don't know. I don't, really don't know how I did it. And my other my other stuff I did when I was a kid was we would go to Horsham, you know, once every once every few months, and I'd buy 
I, we, we were very poor and I would buy the cheapest games I could find. So it wouldn't matter how, whether they were good or not, if it was $2 or $3, that's better than a $4 game because then I can... And, and, and that's the way I would do. So I have all this a, a large collection of cassettes of really shit games at home as well. Anything that was on sale. And uh, once, like I said in the, in the video, once I hit year nine, I, I started to sort of self-analyse myself and, you know, people really think I'm a geek and they won't talk to me. And so I, I made this complete sort of turnaround where I stopped playing games and I started playing sport and, you know, making friends. And eventually, um, by year 12, I was, the, I was the school president. So I must have been pretty good. I must have done a pretty good job at, at turning that around. And I stopped playing games for quite a while. I eventually went to university and although I wasn't making games at that time, uh, post-university, sorry, I could, I could afford them again. And so I started playing games again and, and really starting to get back into the industry. And games like uh, System Shock 2 were just like, okay, I want to make a game like that, which is actually developed by an Australian developer, John, John Che, and a, and a rational. And um, I worked at Melbourne, like, worked in Melbourne for a while at Tantalus and then at Big Ant, and then four years ago, I decided to, as I said, uh, break away and start my own company, have a child, head back to the country, live with mum and dad, with my wife and, and daughter. And, and I've actually done quite well on the App Store, like trying to, to think about the sort of games that people will make. And I'm quite proud of the fact I've had more hits than, than not, which I, I think is unusual for some people. And, and that's about it. That's where we are now. Thank you, Matthew. And I mean, I know that you might think it's ex it's strange for me to get excited to see game developers on Sunrise, but that kind of cultural um, penetration of uh, an understanding of the making of games and how significant it is to kind of cultural activity is so important to me. And being on Sunrise is like a huge step <laughs> forward. <laughs> so uh, we have many other mountains to climb, but uh, thank you for conquering Sunrise. <laughs> Uh, I'd now like to invite uh, onto the stage to introduce himself, um, Tony Lay. Hello, everyone. Uh, it's always a lot easier sitting there and watching than getting up and presenting. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm going to run through my story uh, really quickly. It'll take about 10 minutes. Uh, and I think this is a, probably the best way that I could ever sort of present myself. Uh, it, this shows my sort of art background as well as what I did earlier previous to games. So I'll just kick it off. Oh, I'm going to talk about the Iron Monkeys. Recently we, we got rated the top 30 developer in Game Developers Mag. Uh, I'll take you through the journey through uh, myself, being the expert about myself. Um, and how it all began. So it will be slightly illustrated, slightly animated. So in 1993, uh, my circle of life was pretty much, I drew all the time. I, I drew on the computer. I played games on the computer and played games on console. I did that all the time until I realised maybe I need to get a serious job. So I thought maybe I'll be a doctor. That's a serious job. But quickly I changed all my subjects back to all art subjects. Um, and proceeded ahead to industrial design, which I liked because of the art, of, of the concepting, but I didn't like the engineering. So 
I had the opportunity to do uh, to move into TV post production, do a traineeship there. So I took that took that uh, post and did probably about 50 ads. But ultimately, the you know subject matter was really boring. So I jumped out and finally got into games. Uh, worked at Melbourne House on Space Race, Men in Black, uh, Transformers. But uh, even then, I thought you know I was a bit sort of disillusioned because I just thought you know such a creative media that we have that you know has to be a better way to do things so being an entrepreneur I jumped out started freelancing for a bit but I still really wanted to get into games but how do you do it as, a, as an artist by himself so I got all my freelance money started the Iron Monkeys which was just a namesake of that at that point I followed the f philosophy that if I build it they will come so I literally spent all my money setting up a studio you know with no idea other than having a cool space to be in uh, we eventually grew to five people in that studio so my wife, uh, girlfriend at the time, we lived at the back of that studio. Um, so, yeah. Build it, they will come, and eventually they did. Uh, I met Toby through Dan, who's greyed out. Uh, and so we split the business that way, 40-40-20. Dan was a silent partner at that stage. Toby and I got together, and as, as a two-man band, we put together a game on the mobile, took it overseas uh, to E3, and sold it to Jam that they relabeled to as Samurai. Uh, and we did some more work for them uh, just to sort of prove ourselves again. And we always kept making a new IP on the side. And you know, things started working out. So we got Dan over. So he was no longer a si silent partner. And I think probably at that stage is where I'd say the real Iron Monkey started when the three of us all came together. So yeah. The monkey's growing. Uh, so I think the immediate difference from our studio was the fact that I was an artist, Toby was an artist, the same as Dan. You know, like I was art business, Toby was, you know, art coder. And I put two arts in there in case Dan ever sees this presentation so it wouldn't feel so bad. <laughs> uh, our focus was simple. You know, I, th I think one of those things going through and when I talk about disillusioned, I think... A lot of people that start studios miss the fact that this is an art and craft, and I think every studio should be creatively led. So that was our focus. And our values were simple. You know, we had to look after people because people were important to our craft. And how to nurture their passions was one of those things that I think being an artist, I, I was always used to because I had to manage it for myself. And ultimately, as a business, you need to like figure out really good processes so then you're not just making art for art's sake. Um, and every product, uh, every studio should only be represented by their product. So that was our values, our simple sort of four Ps of Iron Monkeys. Uh, back to the timeline. We, we, we moved again because we started growing. Uh, but we, we were kind of eating vegetables on, our, on the side with mobile, doing all that work. And then we kept doing exercises in terms of doing next-gen console stuff on the side, which was all new IP, but we didn't get it off the ground. At the same time, EA bought Jamdat, who we were doing a lot of work for. So you can see that we started doing um, yeah, a lot more EA IP at that stage and continued on with all our next-gen development. And I thought that was really important. That probably make, uh, made the biggest difference for us. We moved again to our third studio. I think we stayed there till about probably about 50 or 60 people. Um, that was probably our cleanest and our best studio, the most professional that we had. It was three floors. I really enjoyed it. Uh, and But the most significant thing that happened in our mobile space was the fact that the iPhone and the App Store came along. 
So, you know, and at that point we were ready to take advantage because we had already developed all the next-gen skills in the studio. So the two products that we worked on first uh, that came out uh, almost at launch with the App Store was Need for Speed, uh, probably one of our most successful as well, um, and Sims 3. That both of those were one and three in sort of the top uh, top games of that year. And one of my sort of favourites, it wasn't so successful, but I, I loved working on it, was uh, Simpsons Arcade. It's very old school. At the same time, uh, around 2009, EA purchased Playfish, uh, and we acquired Akron. And that was roughly the time of the GFC, so you can see where the market was shifting at that time. Um, and it was odd because while studios were closing down and struggling, we were doubling in size. Uh, the first thing that Akron guys helped us work on was Shift, uh, and that, that did extremely well as well. One of my personal favourite uh, games in our studio, uh, Mirror's Edge. And we continued uh, making a lot of titles, uh, as you can see, but I think one of the most important things that EA uh, have ever made in the history of EA was the fact that they uh, acquired our studio, which I missed the timing of, which is about to happen now. <laughs> so, yeah, so under that we, we kept working on titles that we were, were pretty much owning the space of. Uh, Need for Speed, we've been representing that IP in that space and have been doing really well with that. Um, our most critical acclaimed product would be Dead Space. You know, we got nominated for a BAFTA um, and won iPad Game of the Year. Sims Free Play is our most successful game. You know, it's got about a million people playing per day. Uh, and I think the installs are probably 15 million or 16 millions. Uh, the run we started, but uh, there's a reason why we didn't finish that, and I'll come to that later. And Mass Effect, probably, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd say, arguably, is probably the best uh, third-person action game on the iOS. And this is the reason why we stopped the run, because we got excited that Criterion were going to make Most Wanted, so we, want, we wanted action in that. And what's happening now? I mean, the great thing is now, five men have joined our ranks with Rob Murray, um, and I get to work with those guys as well. So I manage both the studio at this point, and you know, five men are known for, of course, flight control, real racing, iPad game of the year as well, and Spy Mouse. So that's pretty much me. Tony, that's uh, really impressive when you see it all in one place. <laughs> you know, even knowing um, your achievements, it's just, yeah, congratulations. Um, and then our, our last speaker, uh, our last panel member, member um, Steve Faulkner, um, I'm going to read Steve's uh, bio from the catalogue because I'm scared that Steve will be too modest to actually... Um, yeah. To actually... Uh, give himself full credit for his incredible contribution to the Australian games industry. So please forgive me while I read. Uh, Steve Faulkner is the CEO and lead designer at Infant Interactive. He's a games industry veteran with over 25 years of game development experience. Uh, he created his first game in 1983. He has created over 30 titles, first as a programmer, then later as a designer, and as a creative lead. And what he's left out here is also he's written uh, game music that is most beloved 
by fans everywhere in the world. Uh, he's best known for his work Puzzle Quest, which won numerous Games of the Year awards, including a coveted AIAS trophy. Puzzle Quest was surprisingly popular among both casual and hardcore gamers, making its way onto every gaming platform from the Nintendo DS to the Xbox 360 to the iPhone, and spawning a myriad of sequels and spin-offs. Before this, however, Steve was the designer behind the Warlords and Warlords Battlecry strategy game series. And for those of you, is everybody here familiar with Warlords? Because Warlords, when it first came out, really laid down the template for what a fantasy strategy game should be. And it's been hugely in, in influential in that sort of area of games. Um, from that franchise came another 10 sequels between 1989 and 2004 also winning a number of Game of the Year awards and Editor Choice Awards. Steve is currently fascinated by social gaming and is very excited by all the possibilities that, that it, along with free-to-play business, brings to the gaming landscape. So please make Steve very welcome. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Unfortunately, I don't have a fancy AV presentation because I'm kind of busy working on something at the moment. It's been taking up all my time. So I thought I'd just reenact the history of my games with interpretive dance. Uh, <laughs> actually, maybe not. But what I did bring along is a couple of cool props. And um, I, as uh, Helen said, I started, I wrote my first game in 1983. I think John probably actually beat me because I was December 1983. So I, 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 was, um, I, I was probably the don't meet too many people who got one out before I did, but that's awesome. I wrote my first game on this little device here, and this is, this is the actual one I wrote it on. It's a Sinclair Spectrum 48K. It's turning 30 next year. Um, come down afterwards and feel its rubbery goodness of the keyboard, if you like. It's, it's, just, it's a magnificent little device. And uh, that was the actual master copy of the game I've got in my hand here, which when I took it out of the packet today, I discovered has a pirated version of something called Combat Links and etc. on the back of it. So... <laughs> Perhaps piracy is part of the Australian story, I'm not sure. Um, so, yeah, 1983, uh, I liked how John was, said he had a defining moment. My defining moment came in 83 when I played a game called The Hobbit from Melbourne House, which I did not realise at the time was an Australian company. Uh, the name Melbourne in there just never gave it away from me. Like I said, I wasn't too bright, and, and the fact that I'm not too bright will become apparent in a moment. Well, John was smart enough to get his games out to some... Um, uh, to some magazines and send them there. I had a great idea for distribution of my game. What I thought I would do was when I was going to gaming conventions, I would copy a cassette, which took quite a while. I would put it in a glad wrap sandwich bag with a piece of paper which was instructions on how to load it and a little picture of a castle I'd draw on the front. And I would give them away for free at these gaming conventions. And there was a note on the bottom of the instructions that said, if you like the game, please send me $5. I live at this address. And 32 people bought it. <laughs> so Quest, Quest for the Holy Grail sold 32 copies and made me $160, which as a kid going to school, top of the world, right? I was king of the world, $160 from writing a game. And so I did that for the next six years. I followed that, the, probably the first free-to-play business model. I, I, unfortunately, I, I, didn't, I didn't refine it as much as Zynga did. Um, um, I, <laughs> I grew my audience from 32 to about 60. Unfortunately, um, not realising there was actually you know, about 10 or 20, maybe 100 million more of them out there. Um, so 1989 came around and I progressed from the Sinclair to the Amiga. I got myself an Amiga and I wrote a game on Amiga called Warlords. 
And a friend of mine who worked at Mind Games in the city at the time, Andrew Buttery, who also went on to work at, um, at Melbourne House. And, and I didn't find that out until years later because I still didn't know Melbourne House was in Melbourne because I really am quite stupid. Uh, he said, hey, why, there's this group of guys up in Sydney called SSG. Why don't you send the game to them and let them have a look rather than keep sending it out through your glad wrap sandwich bag system, which is failing really badly. So, oh, yeah, OK, I'll, I'll do that. I'll send it along to these guys in Sydney. And they took a look and said, this game's a piece of junk. So they never got back to me. And then the president got up one morning and he finds his uh, eight-year-old son sitting there playing wars. What are you doing? I'm playing this game, Dad. That's a rubbish game. He said, no, it's not. It's really good. It's got like swords and dragons and knights. And so Ian Trout, the late Ian Trout, who passed away last year, unfortunately, was the founder of SSG, started that company in 82, possibly one of the, along with um, Microforte, I'm guessing one of the earliest, and uh, Melbourne House, the earliest Australian game companies. Um, uh, Ian said, oh, maybe it's not that bad. Let's, let's bus him up to Sydney because budgets were limited those days. Didn't fly anyone anywhere. They, they bust me up to Sydney. And, uh, and then didn't pay for my ticket. But uh, <laughs> so I bust me up to Sydney. And um, we had a meeting. And I said, yeah, look, we, could, we think we could release that. And, and we did that game in 89. And that one just crazily took off. And the interesting thing about the games industry in 89 in Australia was just, we, we did our own distribution. We didn't have publishers that we published through. We would duplicate on a big disc duplicator the games up in Sydney. We would box them and shrink wrap in Sydney. We would then box them up and send them to the US where a guy we had in the US would distribute the games around to the various stores and, and kind of manage all their relationships with the stores. And to get the games back into Australia, they didn't want to know about an Australian company. They just were not interested in Australian game developers because Australia, we don't do games. So we would then ship the boxes back from the US to Australia and put them into the stores. And every store except Napoleon's bookstore, which um, Ian Trout used to own, and, and so we would get them in there, and they would appear in Napoleon's like four weeks before everywhere else because they didn't have to ship back to, over to the US and back again. Um, so that was uh, my first commercial success, and we sold hundreds of thousands of units of that, which at the time on a PC game was just, you know, you hit 100,000 units, it was, it was fantastic. Uh, and that was also the days, I wish I had a picture of the box, I wish I brought one along, but you, know, it, you weren't a wanker if you put your name on the top of the box too. So it was Steve Faulkner's Warlords, and I, that was like, taking my friends around the game stores and show them, it was really awesome. I see John had his name on the box too, it was, it was gr good days, weren't they? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I started Infinite up uh, at that time, and because I needed a company to kind of handle all the stuff that was happening, and we... Uh, we kind of we did this weird deal between Infinite and SSG where I would I licensed I basically pimped myself and, and, and prostituted myself to them for a ten year contract and in return I would do all sorts of awesome stuff for them and uh, they would ten years I could have all the stuff back and it was a great opportunity because I wanted to learn about the industry I wanted to run my own business but I, I at that stage I was smart enough to know that I was stupid. And I knew I was going to completely screw it up if, uh, if I went and tried to do this by myself. So they were an awesome bunch of guys. Um, Ian Trout, Roger Keating, Gregor Wiley. Uh, they and, and Gregor and Roger are still in business at SSG, still making hardcore military strategy games today. They taught me tons of stuff. They took me over to the US to games conferences. I went to my first GDC in, 19, uh, in 1991. Uh, and I've been going to GDC every year since. I, I think I've, I've only missed a couple of the first GDCs. I've, I've almost done... I've done a lot of <laughs> GDCs. Uh, don't want to count, it'll make me feel old. But um, 
uh, at about 2002, 2003, after we'd done a lot of Warlords games, uh, I'd been pretty much looking after the Warlords franchise, we'd grown the Melbourne studio that I was managing up to about uh, 20-ish, well, I think it was probably 10, 20 people. Um, e contract ended, I did a couple more years with them because we are having such a good time. We moved on, we founded Infinite. Infinite did a few licensed games, we continued on the Warlords franchise, uh, we grew, we shrunk, we grew, we shrunk, we did Puzzle Quest, we really grew, we really shrunk. Um, it's been kind of one of those yo-yo things up and down. And uh, about a year ago, we, we joined with Firemint, merged with Firemint, and then kind of got um, uh, assimilated with EA and, and Tony and Rob. One of the saddest things, actually, is leaving those guys because now we're back independent as Infinite again. Um, there's a great bunch of guys there at EA and awesome to work with, but uh, at, at the end of the day, um, I'm kind of an independent creative spirit and I like doing my own thing. So, yeah, we're back where we started, working on some new stuff. Thank you, Stephen. I'd just like to invite the other panel members to um, come up onto the stage. Um, and we're just going to have a... We've got yeah, not a lot of time. Um, a short discussion about um, <laughs> some of this is Aussie games from a Beam Software Melbourne House 1985. Um, about Australian games and... Uh, and, and the, our sense of the game, Australian games industry. So, go to our first slide. So, this is the notion of is there an Australian style? It's like some countries, um, for example, Japan and Korea, create games that are very strongly culturally resonant. And um, so, I think the question to the panel here is like, do they think there are any qualities in the games that they make, or even the games of others, that express a particularly Australian nature? And this can mean a lot of things, from things like the larrikin spirit or to the sense of light and landscape or even to the use of language. And um, with this question, John, we might throw to you first as you are the father of Ty. Okay. Yes. Okay, right. Um, well, definitely Ty was uh, very, very Australian and we made a conscious effort to um, you know, make an Australian game. Um, so in that case, I think there definitely is an Australian style. I think it's interesting that, you know, being Australian, one thing we have is um, you, we had influence from both the UK and the US, both in terms of um, the, the magazines we got and what we're reading about. You know, we, we were well versed with you know, all the UK developers and we're aware of the US developers. I, I don't know if that was necessarily true in the US. They probably, didn't, probably weren't totally aware of what was going on in the UK. So I think we had that interesting perspective. And also with uh, TV and movies, you know, we had Benny Hill. I mean, I, this being Generation, I think Generation X, growing up, you know, Benny Hill and Doctor Who and uh, you know, Darling Buds of May, all these interesting shows as well as Magnum PI and, you know, the A-Team. So there was a very interesting uh, mix and I think that was reflected in what we did. Um, but with Ty, uh, we, we definitely looked at, um, you know, from the trailer you were seeing, there's a lot of references to Razorback and Mad Max and we did plumb or plough the uh, Australian uh, cinema sort of um, successes and looked at what, what is typically Australian cinema and, and put that in our game. But uh, one thing which is interesting, we, we, we really did strive for, and something that uh, David Sermon mentioned yesterday and he picked up on, was you know, creating that palette, that visual look. Um, we, we, the artists, to their um, credit, really went out and tried to capture the feel of you know, the outback, uh, the, the olives, colours of, the, uh, of the, um, the rainforest. So there was a very particular, I think, visual look as well in that game. And, uh, and David had an interesting comment. He said he, th he thought he felt that 
carried on in some other games. He mentioned, for example, like Fruit Ninja had a particular color palette. Whether I don't know whether whether if anyone here Fruit Ninja actually did have that influence or not, or maybe it's just a coincidence. But you know, I'd, I'd like to think that was something that maybe did carry on because I know some of the guys um, worked on half of Brick worked on uh, Ty the, um, oh, okay. the GBA so game. So I'm not sure. But so yes, I do think there's definitely um, the definition of strange style uh, for us. Do you think it, that it carries into your other games? Well, I, I tend to, uh, when we're doing Galactic Trader, which is a Facebook game, we wanted to have an Australian character in there. But I wanted him to be an alien who had you know, spent some time in Australia on Earth. Uh, but our investor didn't like the idea. So what we ended up doing is we changed the character to be um, um, uh, Marco, who was one of the founders of Three Blokes. Uh, it was Australian-Croatian, so we, so we made him speak Croatian with an, we kind of the way Marco would have spoke it. So, so we did... We did, uh, we did influence uh, the voice uh, and the narrative of our games, I think, was influenced by being Australian. And the fact that, you know, being that, that typical Aussie larrikin, even though the guy didn't want us to put Australianisms in, we snuck them in anyway. So we did that typical sort of Australian trait. I know that when um, Game On, the exhibition was here and it had sections that were from the different countries, and other than the Japanese section, you know, you can't tell a French game from a an American game, uh, except for real sort of subtleties in, in how things things are kind of dealt with uh, as, a, as a user, as a consumer. Um, does anyone else like to sort of comment on, on their sensibility around the games that they make? Well, with Little Things and Doodle Find, um, obviously that's all about finding objects, and so it wasn't necessarily an intention to draw a platypus or... Yeah. It, it just sort of, I guess just what absorbed what was around me and, and just had to had to draw those things and there's there's a far more Aussie animals in that in that game than, than any than anything else but hopefully it's the animals that like obviously my audience is is comes from the US and the UK and and, and Germany Australia is a big is a big piece of it of course but the others are, are so important you don't want to alienate them by including things that they're just simply not going to understand and so it's always a, a little bit of a tug of war I was talking with a friend of mine about another another game which is very Australian and could could it be sold to could could you work in Australian law into games meant for other cultures and it's it's possible but you have to be very careful not to frighten them <laughs> Steve we um, we spent the first uh, uh, 10 years of a creative existence actively hiding the fact that we we're Australian mm. which yeah. was um, <laughs> you know, it, it made business sense at the time because I, I don't feel that um, the games we were doing uh, we were competing against kind of the microprosers and the SSIs. Uh, I think if um, if a lot of the consumers and or uh, retailers got wind of the fact we were Australian, we pr probably would have sold less copies. Mm. I've always felt the Australian style, to me, was more about how we made the games rather than the actual content that we put in them. It was kind of a, an attitude that, that um, get down, get it done. Tony, you've, um, do you have anything? Because you work with, often work with very strict parameters in relation to the brief of your games and the look and feel of them, because you're dealing with style sheets, etc. No, I, ha I have no input. No input. No, 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 <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, yeah, when when I read about Australian style, I think uh, what uh, Steve touched on is what I think about. It's the fact that we are so far from everyone, and we're so outward looking when when we're talking about games and what type of games we want to make and who we want to be like. I think that that's the Australian style where we're so independent because we're used to. Not you know, we, you know we just don't get looked at as a development community. So it sort of builds that mm -hmm. that pride or that independence and that drive to go out go out and get some, get something done. Mm. And you know just getting down to it and doing the work. I think that's that's probably what I see as Australian style. 
I think we're also very eclectic in where we draw our influences for practice from because we look to the US, we look to the UK, we look to Asia. I mean, there's no, there's no kind of motherland for us of inspiration then because we don't have critical mass here. There's no governing culture that, that suggests how we should do things. So there's very much an independent spirit with everybody in terms of, of picking and choosing from other other it's styles and approaches. It's sort of financial suicide as well to make a game that would only be appreciated by Australians, mm -hmm. unlike yeah. Japan and Korea and, and mm. China, where you know PopCap recently opened a, up an office in China, which is make games in China for China, and that's and that's all they do. They don't use it as an outsourcing office. It's just that they they approach <coughs> it that way, and they can because mm. China's so big. Yeah. I mean, th that's an interesting turning point too with iOS these days. Like when we look at our sort of revenues coming through, like. We're, we're probably third, the third largest sort third of revenue. Or yeah. Yeah, it's it's so decent. It, it's changing. I mean, it's it's something that you know, independents, like independent developers should look at. It's still five percent. Yeah, like yeah. yeah, it's still small. You have to really capture that five percent yeah. with perhaps Aussie sports or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know, you could revisit Aussie sports. Yep. The belly whack, the boomerang throw. I already wrote it down. The skeet shoot. <laughs> <laughs> we're already working on it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is a. Um, a very popular uh, Australian myth that features, well, choice actually, that features in all of Australia's creative outputs, which is the effects of the tyranny of distance. Mm. And so it's the tyranny of distance is always a big part of the Australian story in all art forms. Um, so the question to the panel is, is how they think it affects the Australian games industry, how it affects their work, and, and, and a look at the pros and cons of being in the peripheral and being away from the centre. And also one of the things that... Um, actually, I might go straight to to you here, Steve, because you've... Yeah, okay. In, in the early days, we, the tyranny of distance problem from it for us was that uh, we were quite insular and, and we were isolated from other development communities around the world and, and there weren't the channels like the internet to freely communicate on. Mm. So we had those issues. But as far as distribution went, we were kind of... Uh, insular didn't matter because we would have a guy over in the US who was... One guy could kind of contact all the stores and get our games into all the stores. As the retailers wised up to this and kind of inserted themselves into the food chain with things like marketing development funds, uh, we lost control of that ability to put into the retail chain and we had to move into the publishing model and that is where the tyranny of distance really kicked in for us. Uh, a publisher likes to do a deal with someone who's kind of close to him so if something's going wrong he can walk around there, open the door and kick a few heads and get the project back on track. It's much harder to get on a plane and fly 16 hours, come to Australia and kick a few heads. Uh, the bonus of that is, when you do get the contract, um, tyranny of distance works in your favour because you quite often get left alone a little bit more to do what needs to be done. Mm. And that's, um, that's, that's been kind of nice for us when we have signed stuff up, but it has made it quite hard. Uh, what it's really meant for us is that we've had to work a little bit harder. We've had to travel more, we've had to do better demos than everyone else, we've had to do better pitches than everyone else, we've had to maintain our networks better than everyone else. Uh, tyranny of distance for us has just meant that we have to work a little bit harder to overcome those things. You know, Still, we're still going to make the game, and that's um, we get the good game. That's a big part of the battle one. Has it been reduced with the kind of advance of network cultures, or is there still that need to have a face-to-face -face that, that the publisher feels? For us, at least, feels? I've never seen any substitute for giving the publisher the ability to walk in, open the door, and yell at you uh, yeah. when you're screwing something up. That's that's vitally important. Publishers want to do that. Makes them feel good. Kind of can tell their bosses they've done the right thing. It's not the same if they yell at you over the phone. I've found. That's what Skype's for. Yeah. <laughs> Oops, sorry, lost <laughs> you there. <laughs> uh, um, Tony, you deal a lot. Well, or almost exclusively. Yeah, it, uh, it, it's it's 
we have to acknowledge that we have to you know, make up for all of the, the distance by being you know, in their time zone and waking up and doing, doing calls and doing everything else. But I mean, in, in terms of our day-to-day, -day, that's really important. But I think when it comes to game development these days, I think that's less of an issue. Um, you know, I think that's why a lot of success is coming from iOS developers in Australia because distri di uh, digital distribution is international now. Like you mm. don't have to ship product, you don't have to talk to people. There's the barriers of entry are, are dropping. <coughs> Um, and I think that's really important for people to acknowledge the fact that they can get together with a few people and be on the world stage you know, if they make something that's successful. So there's two parts to it. Like one, I don't think it matters so much, but for us it does because you know we always still need to campaign and make sure that everyone knows that we're doing something quite substantial here in Australia. And with our studio in particular, we're at the spearhead of what, it, what iOS and you know, the free-to-play model, all of that is for EA and you know, at a world stage as well. So. And certainly it's easier now to share a game build, you know, with an international publisher mm. immediately and on the spot, yeah. I, I found a really strange thing was for us, the tuning of distance, at Chrome at least, was always difficult because we were striving to do really, you know, try to do AAA games and whether we delivered them or not. But we did try and to, to make those sort of projects, you know, the publisher, so what you're saying, they wanted to be there and be next to you. So most of the time those sort of projects went to the the teams in the US, but we tried that. But what I found interesting was that three blokes, we were doing Facebook games. And you know, when we started doing Facebook and it became hot, you know, we, I had a call from a VC in Sand Hill Road who wanted to meet with us and I said, you do know we're based in Brisbane? He goes, yeah, I know that. And I said, you do know we're called three blokes because we're literally three blokes? And he's like, not a problem. So it was very interesting that the, the, the change was different. And then um, we scale up a bit more and, and then we we're looking for actively uh, to be acquired because um, just Facebook, we found it was very difficult with the user acquisition costs and the metrics, the analytics. We, we just, as a team, we didn't have those skills in-house, so we're looking for acquisition. Um, we had a lot of uh, American companies approach us, and um, the first question was, you know, you know, we're in Australia, and it's like, not a problem. And it actually became not an issue, I found, um, probably because we're in the right place with Facebook. But what was happening in, uh, in San Francisco is that the cost of acquiring an engineer and keeping an engineer over there is so expensive that, uh, you know, they're competing not only with other like Zynga or Playdom or EA, um, but also with Google and Facebook. So to have a team in Australia was actually a really positive thing. And in, in the case when um, Rocky, we were one of the last ones, Rocky pivoted, as they call it in the industry, went more to an advertising sort of model and, and uh, closed down their internal game studios. And we were the, one of the last ones to close down, which is um, usually it's always with the first because we're further away. Um, but in the, you know, pretty much the week we were closed, um, Kickside came in, so we want you guys because Kickside is doing incredibly well uh, on Facebook. And the idea of having, um, and I, I prefer to it that you know, when you buy an Australian studio, you, you're pretty much buying lifers because you know, at Chrome, no one left; they they, they stayed because you know, I, I'm not sure whether it's because where are you going to? Go? You gonna, I hope it's not that. I think it's because you know, the Australian work ethic is very different. I think in the US it is very much about okay, I'm going to go to Google and then I'm going to get my stock options. Oh, but then there's a startup over here. I'm going to go over there and become a millionaire. So they're competing with that in San Fran. And, and so I think now, whether it will change, but uh, particularly in Facebook and perhaps in social, it's very, I think a very positive thing to have that tyranny of distance. It protects your investment mm. and your staff. So it's kind of flipped around. It has, and that, that, that surprised me. I was From being the first cab off the rank when you're... When you're rationalising, exactly. Now it's like well, we know those guys. Will, they make quality and yeah. they're reasonably cheap, and and they're not going to leave for Google or Facebook or whatever else comes up. So I'm going to move on just because we haven't got a lot of time to the question which I 
thought was brilliant and nobody on the panel, and everyone on the panel said, what do you mean? Um, <laughs> so I will explain this. Um, so this was about looking at the dangers of using a singular narrative to define the Australian story of differing eras and, and does this obscure, you know, at the kind of richness and plurality of actual other activities going on. Um, so we, we create a series of, of dominant stories about what's happening around the Australian games industry. So we have a foundation myth about the success of Beam Software and Melbourne House based on the fact that Melbourne House was an Australian-based publisher and um, that's why that whole era was so successful. But there was lots of other activity actually going on at that time with you know, companies like SSG and Microport that, that actually don't necessarily fit into that model. And just in quickly in relation to what you said before, Steve, about pretending that you were in the UK, Melbourne House, the publishing end, they had a London office. Everyone thought they were a London games mm -hmm. company. It was one person in an office in London, mm -hmm. um, which gave them their London address. <laughs> And so that they, yes, were taken seriously. Um, but there were lots of other things happening at that time. And then we've got these other sort of stories about the industry, which are things like uh, that Australia's commercial strength was purely in developing licensed title for handheld platforms, which is, which is something that has been a really strong part of the Australian industry, but it's not the only story of those eras. Because, you know, there were other things going on, like uh, Warren was developing trains, which, you know, is a game that's been a kind of a Microsoft killer and uh, not many people beat Microsoft in the market because Microsoft throw money at things to solve problems. And this little Australian company got out to the market with their train simulator and, and won that battle. Um, then we have other stories like Australia's not capable of producing AAA games when you know AAA games are constantly being worked on here by companies. Now perhaps that's often in association with other companies but it takes a lot of people to make it, a lot of, you know, parallel with companies in the, in the States, like with 2K Marion, um, but takes a lot of people to make a AAA game. So that's not so surprising. So I think the question is about, you know, why do we make these sort of stories? What value do they have? Because they obviously have some value to us. And, uh, uh, and what are they actually obscuring? Um, and I think we're going to go back to you, Don, because okay. you were telling me quite interesting, your, some of your interesting observations about you thought what happened in relation to Australia's relationship to building licensed titles. Oh right, yeah. This is my theory I have, and um, I think it's it's I think it's a fact that um, what we experienced at Chrome is you know that it was always a, a sense that you know we would get the the second tier jobs. That's what they preferred it because they want the the AAA. In this case, it was PS2 titles in house, so you might get the Game Boy Advance version or the Nintendo DS version. And I think what's ironically happened there, and, and I don't know. Tony can jump into this, but it seemed like out of that, what happened was um, stealthily we were being trained to make awesome iPhone titles for the future. And so when the whole balance of power shifted, I think from either you're either, you know, the middle ground between AAA mega budget games and the really sort of low budget games, the middle ground, which were the five, ten million dollar games, sort of fell away, and you're either going to be Call of Duty or, or not. Uh, Australians actually were trained up quite well in the case of Halfbrick, you know, to make and understand how to make. A short session fun game, and actually, uh, and and actually you know, go to market with that, and in a way that uh, you know they were doing work for THQ up until Fruit Ninja, um, but you know Fruit Ninja came out with the everything they learnt from making I guess all those uh, games. So I think in a way that actually uh, worked out really well for Australia that you know we've got so many um, great games coming out from the Australian industry. So that's my theory. So I don't know whether that's true. So maybe Tony can. Yeah, I I don't think 
one of the things that uh, Australian developers are known for is execution. And like when I talk to anyone else in the US, like they acknowledge that. But I think the weakness that we have is like, you know, uh, experience in AAA and, mm. um, and really large titles. And I think it's practicality too. Like the center isn't here for game development. You know what I mean? Like we haven't been that in history. So if we were all business owners, like you'd rather go next door and deal with someone that had been already been making AAA titles because it's more guaranteed. So, you know, if you look at where Australia sits with that, of course we'll get the, the second tier titles. But I think for us, the most important thing was to hold a quality level that was higher than their expectations. Like we weren't in it to port, we were in it to make games and we had to prove that and we worked hard to prove that. Um, like we'd sign contracts but go well above and beyond to do it because we were there for the craft and I think that came through. So every title that we see, as much as they're all licensed, like we create that in-house, we have our creative guys sort of deal with, deal with them as a licensor um, and we make the games internally. Uh, so that's something that I think what the guys in the studio should be proud of and I think where the industry should always be. Yeah, and I think from what you guys are saying that we need to actually recreate our story so they actually reflect on what we do rather than what we don't do, if you know what I mean. Mm. We're not the centre, is what you said. And we're not the centre. So we don't tell stories about us being not the centre, if you know what I mean. Yeah. We don't look at the centre and go, oh, we're failing to be the centre. We look at what we do here yeah. and we make our stories up about our strengths in relation to being on the periphery, which are strengths like, you know, like, like you've exhibited too, which is just doing your own thing, which is what you've basically done for your whole career. Yeah, uh, we've found that, um, you know, from my point of view, from where I sit, it, it doesn't look, uh, it looks kind of like we, in proportion to the various things that we do, we kind of mirror mirror the US or the UK in, in, in the number of things we, in the number of things and the types of things we do. Uh, and, and I agree with the other guys that having having tried to do this myself to pull quickly pull together people onto projects, it's something we have trouble with in Australia. Having had friends in the US who I've watched have some success, then need to put forty gun engineers onto a project, they do it. Uh, <coughs> we don't have that op option here, uh, so you know we've had to solve things creatively, cleverly. And that's, um, to me, that's kind of our story. This, this kind of pigeonholing, I'll get a bit dark here for a second. So this kind of pigeonholing of, of Australia can't really make AAA games and we really just make handheld licensed titles. I mean, part of that was driven by money, but it was, it was particularly frustrating for, for me as an individual working at a work for hire place. Like, I'd come in and come, you know, just got into the industry and had all these cool ideas. And, you know, I'd work away for a while and then, hey, you know, why don't we all... How about this idea? And and we ended up coming up with one called Master Chef at the time. This is one particular one I remember. And uh, so uh, David and I, w we talked about, we always wanted to make a cooking game. Wouldn't that be a great idea? Oh, my God, that would be fantastic. And so we put together a package of how this game might work and, you know, went up to the, you know, pitched it to the company and sort of got, and, and got nothing back. And then, of course, a month later, they announced Cooking Mama. And then six months later, that was like some massive hit. And I, I've always held a bit of, <laughs> Some, somewhat a, a resentment for that and then but sort of the work over the last few years the work for hire you know industry that the, the cheese is, has gone and so th those companies have exploded and and the idea it seemed that everyone had fantastic ideas like, like that and so that that sort of pigeonholing it, it just doesn't make any sense and you know people should be making the the, the games they're passionate about and and people should be supporting people with with passion 
Yeah. Mm. And, and certainly through that, that um, time, there were things going on. And, 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 and one of the things I've taken away from um, the forum so far is with Borough Inspector saying, you know, um, fail, fail well, fail massively, fail with style. And um, Australia's created some fantastic experiments which we just don't celebrate enough. Uh, games like The Dame Was Loaded from Melbourne House, 1997. Mm. Um, Fury, which we don't celebrate the way we should celebrate in relation to the way that game they set about trying to make that game and the innovation that they took in that process. Uh, they certainly failed spectacularly, but um, it's a really interesting process. So. Anyway, because we're against the clock. Um, in fact, we're on the clock. So very quickly, oh. and uh, this is a very, um, only your own IP is often held up at the grail and touted as the only true path to success. Antonio, I might ask you to respond to that idea. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think chasing IP is the holy grail for everyone that's passionate in this industry. Like, I mean, that's, that's a given. Like, if you can make that, as, you know, as Steve and other guys have proven as well. Um, yeah, th that would be the most ideal. But stemming from that, it, it is very, very difficult because it's a mixture of timing, it's a mixture of luck, it's a mixture of hard work that sort of gets you on that spot. Um, in our instance, we, we did try, uh, but at the same time, we were developing other things that, that, that would make us uh, stand out from everyone else, which was like quality development and qu quality bars and culture and things like that that I think we could also work on at the same time that would usually result in good products. So, yeah, so I think, yes, definitely it's one of the most... It's the holy grail way to success. Um, but if you look at our path, it's also brought us there, you know, depending on what your definition of success is. Like, you know, for us, we... I mean, if you look at what we've done in the past, we got to work on a whole bunch of uh, genres and different IPs that weren't necessarily ours. But, you know, I've been in it long enough where if we get to do a sci-fi thriller, it's like I don't need to put... I don't need to rename Dead Space or redraw an alien. Um, the fact that we get to do it here is pretty mm. pretty cool, you know. So I, I'm sort of a bit more practical from it, but at the same time, that's you know, watch the space when it comes to the Melbourne studio. So yeah, mm. because I'm a one man band, I often have trouble separating the idea of the concept of a company uh, fr from an, from an individual. And I mean, obviously, owning an IP for a company is good, but for an individual, I mean, not everyone wants to have to build everything up. Not everyone wants to be a generalist. I mean, it's really a case of, if you're looking at it from a personal perspective, it's, it's, not, it's not that important to everyone. You just want to work on mm. something cool, even if, it's, even if it's not yours. You sort of just have to follow your heart and, and find your own path through the industry. Yeah. I, I think, though, that one key word I put there is owning your own successful IP is <laughs> definitely <laughs> a path to success. Because <laughs> if, you, if you have, um, you know, for example, I think uh, after I left Chrome, I'd done the Force Unleashed games, but, you know, if they'd owned the Star Wars licence, that would have been, uh, you know, there's no way they'd always have work coming in. I know Telltale Games uh, were very clever in that they, they got exclusive rights to Lego. So when, you know, Lego Star Wars was a hit, if Warner wanted to do Batman, they had to go through Telltale. There's no way they, they couldn't go to Lego and say, well, we wanted to licence that. So generally what happens is, you know, if you have a hit game and, it's doing really well, there's a, there's a good chance that, you know, for whatever reasons behind the scene, they might go, well, look, you guys are doing really well with it, but we're going to pass it on to this other company now. So you could lose that. And then if that happens, that could severely impact your studio. So I think if you can own your own successful IP, so, you know, Half-Brick owns Fruit Ninja, there's nothing, unless they drive into the ground, there's nothing they can do to stop that mm. money just pouring in the door. Mm. But if they didn't own Fruit Ninja, if it was a license from somebody else, 
there's a good chance they could have went, well, 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 Rovio just outbid us and Rovio wants to develop that now and pass on to Rovio. Yeah. And that would be a very different story. So I think that's the key word is owning a successful IP and that's, you know, that's very difficult. Yeah. We don't have time for a non-secretary, we're going to do one anyway, which I find is the notion of success is really interesting, particularly in relation to how the Australian games industry looks at itself because there's Australian-made games that have been financially very big successes but are not so that don't get sort of celebrated, but they've been big sellers and they've done well and things like kind of um, Pony Friends and uh, mm. Monster Jam and, you know, who have kind of... Flashback, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they're, they're not, uh, sense, in sense, either understood through critical success, etc. And there's other games, and I think um, Ty is one of these games, who's going to have this incredibly long-tail legacy uh, based on um, being beloved by a whole generation, mm. you know, around the world. Uh, and we don't have really good ways to talk about measuring success I in those terms. Because you know, Ty's impact for the people who grew up with Ty was, was phenomenal. He was their Mario for a lot of mm, Which kids. is really odd when you work on it because you don't see that. You just think, you know, we're trying to be as good as, you know, Naughty Dog and the guys making Jack and Daxter, and mm. but you don't really think what impact it would have. I know it's really weird. I've, I've got um, I had a people emailing me wanting uh, Flight of the Amazon Queen, so people who are fans of that game, and it's kind of weird to get that. I'm sure Steve and you guys get that as well. People emailing you from something they played when they were kids, um, but yeah, it's kind of weird to think that people actually did enjoy it, even though it sold copies. But it's interesting. Oh, we have three, four minutes. Just five. One more question. All right, we won't do it properly. Can we? Okay. Um. Oh, microphone. Sorry. It's just right in your face. Uh, this is a great quote from a recent article. What is remarkable about the Australian games industry is it exists at all. And I was talking to Dr Melanie Sorwell, who's doing research into the microbee, and uh, she found the identical quote in a magazine from 1984. Uh, and... Really, it's just a huge achievement that we have such a strong industry here and a surviving industry. And look, I personally believe that video games are the most important art form of the 21st century. So I would happily go and take all the funding out of opera and ballet to make sure that the, we have a thriving industry. <laughs> yes. When I'm the Minister of the Arts, watch out. So, um, But I would just really like to ask the panel members a bit about their passion and what keeps them going. Can I go first? Yes, please. Um, when I was a kid, I was really lost. Like, I knew I wanted to make games and I had no idea how to make it. And the idea of meeting, you know, for example, like one of my heroes, like Tony Crother, is about as ridiculous as, you know, can I please meet Steven Spielberg? I really quite like films. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, there's people here in the industry, like, you know, Half Brick, me, you know, John, e everyone at the table and half the people out there could, could give legitimate direction and advice to a, a young kid, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, just starting out, and, and, and tell them, yes, you, there, there is money in this, you, you do have talent, you may be able to do this, do you know any friends? I mean, here's some ways of getting your game to the store. I mean, the internet is there. But to actually meet a person and, and receive real advice and, and know that they're not, you know, some mythical, you know, godlike Steven Spielberg in Jesus robes type person that you would never actually be able to interact with. Like finan financial assistance isn't nearly as important as understanding that this is this could be real. Mm. Hmm. Well, I don't mean about financial assistance when I say that. I mean that I think Australia needs to maintain a games industry 
to have a healthy uh, culture, you know, a healthy and exciting culture in the 21st century. Mm. I think that the value of the games industry is way beyond its commercial capacity and is really essential in creating people with the skill sets and an understanding that makes us a creative nation in the 21st century. I think it's just critical, yeah. I'll go next. Um, yeah, I, I'm still really passionate about what it is that I'm doing, and I think that gets fueled by the people that I work with, ultimately. Um, just working with the like-minded people um, is, is something that I just love doing. I love trying to... Because I know how difficult it is when you have, you know, X amount of people. It's, it's difficult with three people to make a game, let alone, like, we're, we're at about 90 people. Um, and to keep everyone happy keep everyone moving in their lives and everyone wanting to be creative and have creative 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 ownership it's a turbulent turbulent place to be and you have to embrace it and like it to last i think because it's it's one of those things that's so painful and you see it in the in our industry where you know there's so much uh, hate out there at, at the same time especially for ea you know um <laughs> but the, you know because once you make entertainment that is so close i think it's the most passionate uh, mm audience that we have like in any in industry and I think but learning how to temper that with um, experience and practicality is something that I sort of enjoy watching the balance happen and at, at the end of the day see happy people with happy products with you know so Steve um, I'm I'm a gamer and uh, I play a lot of games and when I play games I become dissatisfied with the games I play and I find things that I want to do so for me, the reason I make games, it's a purely selfish reason, is because I want to play a game that isn't written yet, so I make it. And that's um, and what I discover as I do that, that actually making the game is the best game of all. And I find that that's a drug for me and I'm totally addicted to it. It's mm. a purely selfish reason, but that is, that is why, I go, why I go ahead and make games. And John, would you stand on you? Yes, I actually, yeah, I think um, that's very true, that, that sense of making games is, is exciting and fun. And I think fitting into that is for me, it's just exciting that you know I've, I've went from you know PC to or micro B to PC, then to um, you know Amiga and then console and then Facebook and now iPhone. And I'm excited because there's it, it's like in those different platforms, there's still so much in terms of genre and stuff we can do in mechanics that we still haven't scratched the surface on. Like social still feels very uh, nascent, if that's the right word, but it, it hasn't really. Um, there's a lot more we can do with social gameplay and, and talking about premium model. Particularly you know, in Australia. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Even, the w even, even across the world, there's, there's still stuff that's yet to come. So I feel like I'm always learning something new and whether it be a Google TV or Apple TV or something different may come out very soon, different way of play and that keeps me excited about different ways to do it, different ways to make stuff. And I, I, I still feel like there's stuff, there's games I want to make but I haven't got around to making them yet. But um, yeah. yeah, and different things to try out. So it's, it's exciting. We have to finish now because we've run over time. So I'm sorry, those people with questions. Perhaps you could oh. try the corner. Um, our speakers, when they get off the stage, if your questions are pressing and urgent. But I'd like you to uh, join me now in uh, thanking the panel. So thank you, John, and Tony, <laughs> Matt, and Steve. And of course, thank you to Helen. Yay. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to Acme Channel and the Acme website.